We've wanted to talk to Meta on the podcast since the company was still called Facebook. So today's episode is one I'm really looking forward to sharing with you guys. We're joined by Meta Reality Lab's social and creators marketing lead, Bianca Sparta. Now, before the rebrand, Bianca was previously part of the international social media marketing team for then Facebook. So not only did she have to adjust to the rebrand internally, but she was also instrumental in announcing that on social and managing the public response. She is, of course, going to shine a light on that for us today, but we'll also be talking a bit about how the adoption of Meta's various products differs across international markets. Yeah, I know we've been trying to get Bianca on the pod for a while now, and she's a self-proclaimed listener to Social Minds, so great to have her on. And just in general, love speaking to people directly from platforms. We get so much gossip from them and new updates and trends and analysis. So we cover so much in this episode, including behind the scenes of one of the biggest rebrands to date, Facebook to Meta, which countries are the fastest adopters of the metaverse so far, and why the metaverse is the biggest revolution of our lifetime. Well, Bianca, welcome to Social Minds. Thank you very much. Very excited to be here. Now, our big question for you today is, what strategy is Meta taking to engage international markets? Great question. Big question as well. So traditionally, the social pages for Meta, um, previously Facebook, were um, managed by the comms teams. And it's been in the last two years that that has been transferred to, to social first teams. And our priorities here is to ensure that we work with priority markets and we can ensure that they have social first practices, that they are aware of the, the latest features that we have here. And also we are kind of like used as a bridge between the global strategy and also what is done on a local level. But overall, what we do when we look at international markets is understanding the cultural nuances that they have. It's very different to work with Western markets than, than emerging markets. Also the, the maturity of these markets when it comes to the internet and how they consume content, we can create more complex activations on, on those markets that internet is widely available. And also that they have more access to features or tools that we have across the, the platforms. But overall, it is important that international pages also are completely aligned with what we're doing across the business, not just the global meta pages, but also the family of apps, which includes Instagram, Messenger, WhatsApp, just to name a few. Yeah, of course. I mean, let's talk for a little bit about the moment that Facebook became Meta. So obviously the company has its social product side, like you've just touched on there, that we that we know and love. Um, and now it's got the Metaverse side of things. So I want to ask, what does Meta know internally about the future of tech and the, the future of consumer behavior that actually led to this decision to rebrand and sort of reshape the company? You know, what, what does that reveal about the future of our lives on uh, digital? First of all, the rebrand was an exercise that has taken us over two years. It was not an overall decision at all. And it marks the new vision of the company. From being a social media company to being a metaverse company. And because of that, we needed to reflect it on, on the name and other elements that we've been working in the past. Keep in mind, we, we're very aware, and that was one of the main challenges, that any rebranding is just particularly difficult to learn if you're a glo com global company. Yeah. They tend to come with a lot of criticism 
And we do have very vocal detractors from the company. So all these elements were were taken into consideration to craft how we were going to manage this. But ultimately, we wanted to make sure is that people understood that the company was changing the name to Meta. The apps were staying the same. Facebook app will still be called Facebook app, which was one of the main concerns that we have with this move, having a company name and our main product called the same thing. And it also presented amazing opportunity for the social team to start doing things differently. We wanted to make sure that we're a lot integrated culturally, what was happening and how we do things in the future, that we could work with influencers and with creators to do much bigger things that we've done in the past, We'll be able to have these one-to-one conversations, be a little bit more human than we've done in the past, and align our comms with with innovation and the metaverse, ultimately. When you mention what reveals for the future of our lives, um, the metaverse is already here. A lot of people don't really think of the metaverse as the embodied internet, which is ultimately what it is, is the ability to be in a place or feel being present in a place when you're not there. And the the two key technologies that we're leveraging at the moment is VR with the uh, headset MetaQuest, but also augmented reality. That's also part of the metaverse. And augmented reality is already fairly integrated on in our daily lives. You can see it on filters in Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat. You, you saw it with the craze of Pokemon Go a couple of years ago. And also we see it more and more integrating our lives through um, retail and fashion. L'Oreal or even Clarins, you can go to their websites and try their products without leaving your house, using your laptop, using your phone. You'll be able to buy those products again without leaving your house. So those are ultimately the advantages of the metaverse that you will be able to do more and have a more immersive experience. And it's going to help people creators and brands to do their life in a, in a much easier way. Ultimately, uh, if we start looking at the metaverse and the technology as something scary versus something that can make your life a lot easier, that's going to drive through mass adoption. Um, no, a lot of the crazy ideas that we see right now have uh, been played around. There's a lot that we'll be seeing in the future. Like One of my favorite examples is the Raven partnership with Meta, where it allows you to be more present, ultimately. You can listen to music, you can pick up calls, you can take pictures, record videos, all without touching your phone. Therefore, it allows you to be more present in, in any experience that you have with friends or at events or anywhere that you are, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, the Metaverse chat is fascinating. And I know we're going to move on to cover that later. I just wanted to stay on the, the rebrand for a moment, just while we're here. So when a company the size of then Facebook decides to rebrand, naturally you'd expect, you know, hundreds of people to be involved in the process. You said it was two years long, massive, but that wasn't the case, right? Only 75 people knew about this around the world, about the rebranding to Meta. Is that right? Uh, I will even say 75 is a very high number. It was, it was manic. Um, I have, I was really lucky to be part of it. And I was surprised how many little people we were working on a project that had so much at stake. And logistically yeah. was also quite challenging because not everyone had access to knowing the new name of the company or the new logo. So sometimes you had to like pre 
pre-agree in the call who was doing that and who was dropping off at specific points to ensure that the information was not leaking. That was going to be my question. So, you know, obviously social media these days, you know how leaks are so prevalent. It happens everywhere. Someone says something and next minute is huge. So how did you manage to keep that best kept secret of Facebook HQ at the time and then prepare to break that news externally whilst also adjusting yourself internally to keep, you know, to obviously stay true to those changes. How did it look internally for you? Uh, including agencies as well. We had agencies and we had internal people to to help us pull it off. And ultimately, it was a lot of hours that went into this project. What we knew is is that um, a lot of people were going to take great score on, on the announcement. And so that as not as a challenge, but as an opportunity. And it was very interesting to embrace that challenge, which Facebook in the past hasn't been that open about it. We knew that we had several very defined goals up front. One was to be as clear as possible, as explained earlier. We had the same name for the company, the name, same name for our main product. So the communications need to be super clear. We needed to stay super flexible as well. We go through a lot of negative news cycles and October 2021 wasn't different to that. Um, we didn't know what sort of news we were going to come across. So it, will, what it was going to impact directly how we talk to our community. We had tons, tons of documents to pre-plan. Um, that was the key, one of one of the keys. And it's not only things like, why are there FAQs or why is the management crisis process? We had lots of documents outlining how people will respond to the logo. Like, how badly can you twist our logo, our new name? It's like worst possible outcomes to make sure you're prepared. But I mean, like, I mean, we all saw the memes, but I think as far as a response to something that big goes, like a company like at the time, Facebook, that's in like everyone's lives for, for that to change. I honestly expected a little bit more sort of clap back. I don't know what you guys saw from your end that might not have made it, you know, onto my feed. But all I saw was like a lot of uh, memes, like some comments made in jest, but sentiment overall, really positive. Yeah, it was a complete success. Um, and I, I kind of like think that that went down due to three reasons like obviously we have our proactive messaging which was the keynotes and everything that we work with with the countries to to post and it was a big effort just to aligning and coordinating that but the other two pillars that for me is what made this a success was like our reactive messaging for example so we had two communication centers one in menlo park in the states and one here in london where it, we had creative directors, we have copywriters, we had people from the comms agencies, from our community management agencies, listening, identifying opportunities from brands, from creators, from public figures, and reacting in real time, creating the assets as well for these people. We managed to ship almost 1,500 responses with bespoke content, bespoke copy, and that drove over 140,000 engagement, which is something unheard of uh, when it came to a rebranding like this. But for me, my favorite part is what we did with creators. Uh, we all knew that creators were, were going to be a key part in landing the message, especially for the audience that we're going after. 
But um, the approach was actually teaming up with meme creators, which is not probably what, what you expect from a company like, like Meta. We divided it into different sets of creators. We wanted those that break the news. And we team up with My Therapy Says, Puberty, The Secret Set Vice, uh, St. Oaks, these kind of people to tell the world about it in a way that is very authentic and genuine in their tone of voice. And then yeah. we also team up with creators that will react to this news. One of them was Angry Reactions. We also team up with Kavi Lame. He created a video where he integrated himself into the, the keynote with Mark Zuckerberg. That video drove 32 million views. And also Emily Sugai, who is known for recreating logos from big companies. I think the fact that we were more human in our approach, we were open to work with people and, and give up a lot of the ownership of that creativity and mm. making sure that they will do their own thing and speak the, the language that the audience speaks. That was a, a key of the success of this rebrand. Yeah. yeah, it's nice to see Meta laugh at itself as well, I think. Yeah, definitely. It shows a different side to the brand. It actually leads me nicely onto my next question because I was going to talk about um, kind of best best in class strategy. And I think as a social media company, as it was now a metaverse company, it's always presumed that the best in class social strategy would be seen from your own platforms, right? So if I wanted to see what Facebook should look like, I go to Facebook's page. So what's Meta's approach to its own social strategy now? And has the company's goals changed in terms of what products you want to communicate on social after this rebrand? Yeah, massively. Um, this was an opportunity for the social media to, to do things differently. We have gone through a massive reorg as well, where we want to make sure that we focus on, on the community and we focus on, on culture as well, like shaping culture, pushing it further, making sure that the content that we do gets um, the apps talked about in, in the right way, ultimately, because we're building a lot of tools for, for people and we want to make sure they they know about them and they know how to leverage them. We got this brief from Mars Zuckerberg, which is build awesome things. That That's what it's about. And you can take that in so many different ways. This is what exci is exciting about the brief. And you will see it in the next few months coming together and coming to life in many activations, a lot of them in the metaverse. But um, in terms of our social media strategy still is rooted on what it was before the rebrand, which is protect the community. No one should feel unsafe in our channels and our platforms and also grow the community, growing the community by ensuring that we're giving so value, some value to them. Mm. The editorial approach, which I think is a little bit what you were going on with, with your question, is not... an Different to what I've seen from brands like Red Bull, which, where I worked before, we kind of like a developing on big hero moments where are these integrated, scalable moments, the big ones. And then we have more like an always on moments, which is kind of like this drumbeat of content where you have more reactive and proactive pieces of content. I think I'm keen to pick up on one of those points there, actually, um, in terms of your goals, one of which being growth. And obviously, international markets, as we've sort of touched on at the beginning, um, is going to play quite a large role in that. So I guess from your side on like the content team, 
you know, how do international markets present new challenges that, you know, you don't perhaps see when you're working on the UK market in terms of like the kind of messaging you're putting out? Is there certain things that some markets are more likely to respond to, uh, you know, compared to others? Yeah, I mean, our pages are open to everyone and our content is always going to be very inclusive. We work with very different markets across the world and more than challenges, I will say there are like taking the boxes that are needed in order to create content that will work for them. We we have to think global, but at, at locally, the strategy is always going to be global and it's going to cascade to the markets, but it's going to come to life in different ways. Because as you pointed out, if you not know, everyone has access to the same tools, you not know, everyone has mm. the same environment, maybe people have more or less access to the internet and that is always taken into consideration but the starting mm-hmm. point is always going to be uh, local insights it's, it's quite different to do campaigns in in different markets to give you an example naively thought that Valentine's Day will be a great one to activate across markets so we had the UK and Germany but then when it came to India we realized that the dating scene doesn't really exist over there so we had to completely pivot the idea, like you're either single or married, pretty much. I've experienced that in, in sport as well. Really? I think, yeah, with the way that, especially in football or soccer in America, the way that they communicate with fans is completely different. Mm. You have to obviously use different language. Um, but it's just like the, the pre-game activities are completely different. You have to understand that. And if you weren't in that market yourself, as uh, like here, if you weren't either Indian or worked in Indian markets, you would never realise that. How have you adapted then, um, Bianca? Is it just like focusing on these insights and is it more of a data-led approach now that you have to sort of follow, um, you know, the insights in terms of finding out what's going to work in different places? Data is, uh, plays a big, big role. Um, and insights, we have a whole team just for insights to ensure that even if the intention is the best possible, we need to make sure that it resonates at a local level. Mm. And it's not, it's not always the simplest task. Uh, that's why we have really big teams behind the social media team helping us from measurement, from analytics, from insights, all these in order to make these campaigns that are going to go out there, that are going to be seen by hundreds of thousands, even millions of people resonate and be something that they, it brings value also for them. People want to share them. It's kind of interesting because we see this with campaigns. We see this even with reactive content, you know, like, for example, one of the best reactive contents that we had in, in international markets was the asparagus season in Germany. Probably something that wouldn't resonate in the UK or in other countries, but it was it was a really big thing in Germany. And um, we also tried to pick on on global trends. We did a couple of posts on Squid Games, which is a global phenomenon last year, and what is happening on the platform. You might remember that picture that um, was posted with the avocado seed on our seat. We created reactive content from the back of that so all these things are little things that we like to find and and leverage because they're quirky and they happen on the platform i mean obviously you've spent like the last handful of years bringing um like facebook instagram whatsapp messenger to international markets um so i'd imagine the strategy for that is sort of you know you're all comfy with it you know what you're doing but now you know since the rebrand 
Um, you've got metaverse products and new ideas to pitch, not just, uh, you know, at home in the US and like uh, the UK, um, but in these international markets as well. So I'm interested to know how the adoption of metaverse specific products and technologies um, differs across international markets um, and also age demographics. So, you know, are there, you know, some countries that are way more into it than others? There is a huge difference between countries. We we do this exercise of cultural mapping. Every week and every month, we we see the, the conversation around the metaverse and how that evolves. I can tell you that the conversation is growing exponentially. And that's a lot of it thanks to public figures like Justin Bieber and Paris Hilton joining the, the, the metaverse, creating events there. A lot of brands have been very vocal about getting involved from Nike to TikTok, even Tinder has done something there, Spotify. In terms of the people talking about it, is right now more like savvy gen sets. There's a lot of tech journalists. There's a lot of gamers, Mm -hmm. people into art and technology as well uh, because of NSTs mainly. And you'll be surprised to see that most of the conversation is quite screwed toward men. There's like about 70% men versus women. However, these mm. numbers are changing quite a lot, especially around uh, topics like like fashion and, and music as well. We see a lot more women getting involved there. But the the conversation, the, the big chunk of the conversation around the metaverse is still around NFTs and cryptocurrency. Yeah. That is like 80% of the share of voice at the moment. And do you have uh, just just out of interest? Do you have uh, any data to back up which market is like the, the biggest adopter at the moment? Off the top of my head, I'd imagine America, India. Yeah, India is always like quite savvy and on it. But some yeah, sometimes markets surprise you. So I would be interested to hear if there's like a clear front runner of people who are like way more ahead of the curve than the rest of the world. The US is is huge with thirty one percent of it. Then in an in international. We have top countries, Philippines, Bangladesh, and Indonesia. Mm, Philippines. Do you know what? Our podcast does really well in the Philippines. Hello, f- listeners from the Philippines. It's like, don't underestimate like certain countries. The Filipinos. Hello. Yeah. Well, you know what? I was, I was in the Philippines for, for two weeks because we have a project there. And the Philippines was chosen for this project because they're super savvy and super advanced when it comes mm. to the metaverse. In, in the Philippines... The pretty much innovation is not a toy. Like we see it here, innovation is a tool. And they have mm. this, this game called Axe Infinity. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Basically, Axe Infinity is almost like a Pokemon kind of game. But like Axes are actually NFTs and they fight with each other. The thing is that every fight, you will get the local currency on the game, which is Love Potion. That love potion can be exchanged to Ethereum and that Ethereum can be trans- exchanged to local currency. Because mm. during the pandemic, they had an employment of 40%, which is crazy, especially if you compare it with the Great Depression in America, which was only 25% of the population. Yeah. It gives you an idea, like how was the situation in, in the Philippines during the pandemic? And it's fantastic to see the take on how they're using the metaverse to for value, ultimately. Like you see people in, in the Philippines from young people of 13 years old all the way to 60 playing Axie Infinity. And it's a, it's a great example of what you can do 
with the metaverse and how you can merge the worlds and what you can get out of it as well. I think like many tech breakthroughs in the early stage, there are certain barriers to entry. That's why that surprised me actually with um, with those countries because it's not typically, you know, like wealthy countries, so to speak. And I think we're seeing this with VR tech at the moment that like we mentioned at the start. For example, you know, an Oculus headset, for example, I think it's kind of like 300, 400 pounds, depending on the spec. So fairly expensive barrier to entry for a lot of people. So for those markets that have either, you know, poor internet infrastructure or don't have the access to Oculus or just simply don't have the finances to commit to buying NFTs, etc. How are you overcoming those challenges to include absolutely everyone in this new digital feature? Accessibility is a big question here, but one of the things that I want to make sure anyone listening to this podcast um, gets away with is is the fact that the the metaverse is multi-device. So you not only access the the metaverse through VR, that is definitely the most immersive technology that we have available for the metaverse, but you can access it through your phone, through your laptop, through your tablet. And augmented reality is part of that idea of the embedded internet, of that idea like feeling that you are there, that your presence is there when you are not necessarily there. And because of that, because of um, the fact that like our vision is to ensure that these barriers of not being in the same place are, are broken down, one of the key areas that we're exploring is our avatars. So avatars are already available on, on Instagram, on Messenger, on Facebook, and you have them as well on MetaQuest, on Oculus. Um, the aim and the focus in the next few years is going to be to ensure that those avatars are as highly personalized and customized as possible because it's going to be you, your presence in the metaverse. And in terms of customization, like we're not only talking about being able to have different types of haircut to like piercings that you can add to your body, but even clothes, like one of the things that is important and one of the things that we communicate through is how we dress. And that is an element that we are taking to the avatars as well. I've always said, Bianca, if for my avatar, if I'm in the metaverse, I don't want to be like me. I want to be the weirdest kind of wackiest figure ever, you know, to, to have a completely really? different persona. I mean, so I just like, make I myself like cuter than I am, but that's not it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'd have like <laughs> the wackiest stuff on and do stuff that I wouldn't be able to do in real life in this, or in the metaverse, essentially, in this alternative reality. But maybe yeah, that's use the best it to trial out like the crazy outfits that you feel like they're a bit too timid to try in real life. Yeah. Like, if my avatar looks good in it, then you go out and buy it in real life and you think, yeah, okay, I'm, di- I'm digging this. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that, like people replicating the wardrobe in the, mm. in the metaverse and the other way around, trying things in the metaverse and maybe going in real life and buying them. Yeah, if I rock up in flares and stripes and everything else next podcast, you'll know why I've been messing yeah, with my great. avatar. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but no, that's all really interesting. And I uh, I want to touch a little bit more on the sort of social uh, product side of things as it pertains to, um, you know, uh, how we're seeing all these changes in international markets. So like a lot of um, the same products and features that we talk about on this podcast in particular is like Facebook groups and Instagram reels still coming on top as like one of the, well, two of the, you know, most popular features. Um, but I'm wondering if that changes at all for international markets, both in terms of what features uh, like you users are more excited about using, but also about what features and products Meta is sort of 
encouraging uh, people to use. And when I say people, I'm sort of talking about brands and agencies a bit more now, like the kind of advice we'll hear, um, you know, as a as a partner on what sort of products we should be leaning into a bit more. In terms of the products um, across market, international markets, not everyone has access to the same same tools. Like rolling out uh, new products is something that is very key for the company in general, and it's also that something that we take into consideration with when creating strategies. What I will say uh, for brands is, is actually look at the product that you're selling and then also the behavior of your community. And that way you can detail what sort of products from, from the family of apps and meta in general will be more beneficial for your company. So for example, if you, if you are a brand that is selling games, Facebook Live is something that we've seen a lot, like just showing the community what the game looks like and seeing people um, playing it in general. On on the flip side, if you have a business around fashion or retail, we see a lot of reels. That is something that has become super popular. Also, the e-commerce features that we have, we are working really hard to improve it to make the experience seamless. That's something that is fantastic for brands that have a product to sell and you can even take it to the next level and start creating filters like Clarence or L'Oreal created where like you can try your products online and drive sales that way. For global trends there are like three four major trends that we see. The first one which I'm sure it doesn't come as a surprise is Reels. So Reels is really is our like fastest growing content format by far. Yeah, it seems to be like the main focus on the social product side, certainly. It, it is clear that the community prefer that format in terms of like how they want to consume the content. And that's mm-hmm. great. Like, yeah, that just dictates for us what we need to focus on, which is improving tools for creators, ensuring that the there is a process for monetization, making sure that the algorithm is as good as possible for the people actually watching it and rolling out to as many countries as possible. The other trend that we see is actually community messaging, which is people in groups that have something in common, either it's an interest, an experience or um, community in general. We're seeing that content has stopped being share on timelines to be shared more on these community chats. Again, this opens a huge opportunity for brands and, and for us who are building tools. We see that in WhatsApp itself, over 1 billion small businesses are connected every month. So mm-hmm. we're working really hard to ensure that there's a lot of uh, vertical integration in the future. So we will be able to you know, order food or maybe order a cab through through the app without leaving it and making again that that process a lot more more seamless. The last two trends that are kind of connected is personalized ads and e-commerce. So people want to see ads that are actually relevant to them, and business also want to make sure that the right person sees them because that will lead to more sales. And that's why all the e-commerce capabilities were really stepping up the game. We launched shops about a year and a half ago, and it's been great for users to find products, and it's been great for business to ensure that they can reach to the right audience as well. 
And what we're trying to do is, again, to make sure that the experience is as simple as and easy as possible so people don't have to click and go to another page. They don't have to put their car details again. It could be done just in a couple of clicks. And that, that's the aim of the game, right? Just to reduce friction, keep people in app. It'd be a lot to sort of, um, I guess, have to pivot around for everyone, not just Meta, um, you know, in the wake of all the changes happening with cookies, et cetera, when it comes to like personalization and tracking. But Bianca, does that advice then um, differ at all globally or is that pretty like standard across the board? Yeah, these are, as I say, like different countries will have like different levels of, of adoption of some of these. But overall, these are the global trends that we see and the direction that yeah. uh, we're seeing is going. Yeah. Well, I could listen to global trends all day, honestly. Like, it's so interesting to get it directly from the horse's mouth. I know we have to wrap things up. And I know you're a listener of the pod, Bianca, and you'll know we like to do this. We always like to round off with some actionable advice that brands listening can, can take away from the pod. Mm -hmm. So I think by now, we, we all recognise our move towards the metaverse is, is, is going to take place over a long period of time. It's not just something that's a, a flash in the pan and we're there. So in terms of brand activations and campaigns, what technologies should brands invest in now that can prepare them for the next five years of advertising with Meta? That is also a really big question. Um, yeah, we start big, end big. That's how it works here. <laughs> start big, continue big, finish big. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of like buzzwords thrown around, isn't it? Like what 3.0, NFTs, crypto, mm. uh, metaverse, and, and all these elements and all these technologies are here and they will continue being integrated in our lives. So as a marketeer, we should be aware of what's coming. Um, it might be quite different when it becomes um, mass adoption of what we're seeing right now, but it, it opens up a lot of advertising opportunities. And that's what we're seeing already at Meta. And a lot more will come. Because at Meta, we focus on creating the tools for, for brands, for creators, and for people to create these experiences. For us, it's going to be very focused on on hardware and software to make sure that they are as user-friendly as possible to get more people to try it, to get more people to do campaigns in the metaverse, to get more people excited overall about this technology, which is it, hard to believe, but we are living through a revolution. I don't think we will be seeing anything bigger in our lifetime than the metaverse, in all honesty. And when it comes to hardware and software, there are specific areas that we're focusing and I will also recommend brands and people to get familiar with, with those areas. Again, we see trends behind those that makes us invest more, more in it. One is um, obviously MetaQuest Oculus. There's been over a billion dollars already spent on content. There is a huge demand from people to know more about what the metaverse is, the content, like how submersive it is. The Raven stories as well from an augmented reality point of view. This is the first version, but then following versions will have a lot more features integrated in them and it's going to be a very wild ride for the team a very exciting ride as well of what's coming for software on the other side uh, we're focusing on two things one is um horizons which is a social vr world building we are teaming up with engineers to basically air spaces for people that are not physically in the same venue one of them, uh, which I really enjoy, was a recording studio where like we got together like different producers that 
give you that experience that you're in the same place producing music, but you might be in completely different corners of the world. And then avatars, like avatars is going to be your presence in the metaverse. We continue working hard to include that high customization, making sure that people physically look the same or completely different, like Callum was talking about earlier. <laughs> yeah, I'll be in my flares. <laughs> Now's the time to reinvent yourself, guys. Yeah. Be whatever yeah. you want to be. If that's all for today, I think what a, it's a good place to end it on. Um, and just want to say again, thanks so much for coming on. I think we've had a really interesting chat and hopefully a lot for our listeners to take away. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great experience. I've come away from that episode with a little bit of FOMO because I don't have an avatar and it feels like mm. we, we're all going to need to get one at one point. I could have sworn you had one already because you joined our chat with a new sort of like digital looking Callum. I thought, oh, he's here. He's on it. I'm trying What's to get that? into it. I'm just trying to get myself into the metaverse, but I know no I'm experimenting. Yet. I'm going mullet and flares, I've told you. So next time you see me, <laughs> whether it be here or in the metaverse, I shall be flexing. We could get some new Social Minds promo out, but instead of our faces, <laughs> you'll be seeing our cartoon faces and flares and feather bows, etc. Um, one thing I want to touch on actually from that is um, the global monthly trend. So the Philippines and Bangladesh adopting the metaverse you know, seemingly faster or, you know, more enthusiastically than Meta's home country of the mm. United States. Um, and what I thought was particularly interesting about that is that context that Bianca provided. So 40% uh, unemployment rate in the Philippines during the pandemic. And that's actually, you know, been the cause of pushing them more into the metaverse, which does seem to be the trend. I feel like we had this conversation a few weeks back as well when we did our webinar with Brett and uh, Ben. And the question was sort of why now and not in five years? Mm -hmm. And a big reason for that being that COVID sort of pushed us all online and you know accelerated this um this shift so it's actually interesting to me that markets who were worse affected by the pandemic might come out of this with a technological advantage over other countries yeah i mean it, it is interesting i think you know countries with like you say like either higher in unemployment or just lower incomes are adopting the metaverse mm -hmm. more than you know the stronger economic countries despite like i say entry or barriers to entry typically being a little bit higher whether it be cost or the lack of internet etc Although I, I was thinking about this and I do think the benefit lies in, uh, as Bianca touched on, you know, you can be somewhere that you've never experienced before. Mm -hmm. So it allows people to experience things they never get to experience. So, for example, you know, I might never experience, hopefully I do, uh, a yacht moored in Monaco for the Formula oh. One. You know, I'd love to I experience that. i that for you, Carl. Thank Sounds you very much. nice. But I could, I could do that in the metaverse and, you know, that would cost me, a, hopefully, I mean, I imagine a fraction of the price. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think the benefits are here that, uh, people who may not be able to afford things or may never have even considered or logistically can't get to the other side of the world to experience things, they can do, literally, yeah. as Bianca said, in the click of a button. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So it, yeah, it, when she was talking before about how um, one of the technologies they're experimenting with is making you like more present and you can do like everything without needing to touch your phone. Mm -hmm. I think that's like a really positive shift if it like is adopted and like works well because I think like one of the biggest uh, you know downsides of how far we get with tech is always how much more we're glued to our devices, and I think everyone's yeah. actually a lot more conscious of that. So if you can sort of take that part away, but keep the utility of like all these apps, etc., that'd yeah. be really useful. Yeah, living in the present but enhancing the present rather mm. than taking away from that with being on the phone. That is, I absolutely, I'm all all for that. You know, I, I saw an example actually the other day that um, you know if you're walking around 
the street and you had the glasses on, you could see ratings above restaurants straight away where you're looking. It's just giving me like Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man vibes. Yeah. Where he's like talking to Jarvis in his yeah. glasses. Yeah. I mean, I love that. That's and the I can future see the I want. Like, I want to, I want to do that. I love that. Well, let, let's just have a quick chat about the the rebrand as well because mm. I'm fascinated by this. Yeah, nice um, to hear about that. You know, the the, <laughs> the size of the team, myself and Eve, we caught what would be anchored before the pod and we were talking about this and, and we were so shocked to hear that it was such a like, small who team. Who knew? It's like, no one. <laughs> exactly, but how, we know how things work, whether it be in agency land yeah. or just in social media and it's so hard to keep leaks. Yeah, but yeah, they have to protect themselves from leaks. Exactly. And also as well, actually, the, the way they launch, so how they embrace creators and communities for the launch, really yeah. like that. They speak how people speak on their platform and that is the absolute key, you know. The memes were inevitable. We all saw the the memes and they were yeah. on board with that. They knew they were going to come and they were on board well, to planned, land messaging. Yeah, they, they planned a lot of that. Exactly. Well, do you know what? I really enjoyed a lot of the memes. I thought, you know, when we found out it was happening, I was like, oh God, like waiting for the backlash to sort of come on and like we usually have to report on things like that and social and six, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but then actually seeing the like lots of positive sentiment, um, most of it coming from memes. Like some of them are taking the mick, but it was all like in jest. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if that... Does it does it ruin the magic a little bit knowing that that's something that was paid for? Basically, I don't know to what extent, but they were they were like you know they were part of that. Look, we might have lifted the lid there a little bit, but I think it goes on more than we know, or more than people. No, definitely, you know, yeah, like definitely. to think. Um, and it's just clever. It, it is just clever, and yeah. it was managed so. Well. And and I think the success of the launch and the way that it's now just a thing. Matter is a thing. It's not seen as. You know, it's not. It, it just works. The the whole rebrand worked, and and you rarely see that from rebrands this big. I think. Yeah. Um. There's always some sort of backlash, and I don't think that happened yeah. here. So there hats is, off to like, matter for the that. response had to be like match the size of like the event, basically, didn't yeah. it? So they like had a lot going on. But yeah, about like the meme pages thing. I saw something earlier this week. You know, the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial mm -hmm. that's going on. They think that Depp's PR team has like paid meme accounts basically to put him in this really like positive, funny light. There's loads of memes coming out all over Instagram and TikTok. Yeah. Um, and then I saw another one that they'd seen a meme, a popular meme page posting like really pro Elon Musk content that didn't fit in with the rest of the page at all. It was like him speaking of mm. inspirational music. And there's there's sort of like people are cottoning on now to be like, are the meme pages compromised? Is this like becoming too well known of a tactic? And I guess from a brand perspective, what started as a really smart campaign, um, you know, strategy might soon lose its effectiveness because this is happening a lot more. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I kind of promised myself I wouldn't get political on the pod, but I think <laughs> we saw it with you know the government and the round elections. You know, there is some sort of not foul play, but they're, you know, manipulation in the back end in mm. terms of controlling narratives. And it's not just government, it's like you say, you know, the may or may not be um, around the trial, et cetera, et cetera. But it's definitely a tactic. It's one that people use and whether we like it or not, it's, it tends yeah. to work. I just so, don't want like audiences to become too aware, do you? And then it stops working for brands and yeah. The people who I think can get a bit more creative with it. Anyway, let's see where where this is all going to go. Um, I'm so excited. I, you know my stance on the metaverse. I am excited by it. And yeah, really love speaking to platforms directly to get all the insights directly from the horse's mouth. So yeah, I love that episode. Mm -hmm.